0: Romans chapter 16, if you have your Bibles this morning, Romans chapter 16, if you came this morning and you don't have a Bible on your device, maybe you left it in your car or at home by accident, we have ushers who are able to give you a Bible to follow along with this morning, just slip up your hand and they'll find you, Romans chapter 16, begin to venture into our final chapter of this book uh, towards the end of the second year of studying this book together. I trust it's been an encouragement to your heart. Uh, God's word usually is for those who love it. So let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer here as we begin today. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this yet another opportunity to open up the perfect law of liberty as it's described by James in chapter 1 and verse 25 and we're thankful for the promise given there that those who look into it and study it, those not being forgetful hearers, but doers of the word, that you would bless them in their deed. So we do understand that this is your word that, by your grace, tells us the story of Christ and our need for him and that transforms us. And each and every soul here who's in Christ, we are certainly eternally grateful. For that gift of life and life more abundantly and eternal life through him. As the choir sang, as we sang together as a church uh, this morning, uh, we're we're overwhelmed uh, by the reality that uh, we have been given the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of someone else that we did not deserve. We're thankful, Lord, that when you do see us, you see your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the perfect law keeper. So, as law breakers, we could look to Him and to find spiritual satisfaction in our souls, ultimately in Him and Him alone. We're thankful, Lord, that that's the story, really, of Hebrews seven, eight, and nine. Reality: There was one sufficient death by one sufficient God-man for all of us who are insufficient to, in and of ourselves, save ourselves. So as we look at this final chapter together in the next several weeks, I pray, Lord, that by your grace you would teach us, again, what grace does practically in the lives of people when they're truly In Christ. So open up our hearts and minds to learn and be encouraged and maybe be convicted and helped as we journey through this final chapter together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I believe your Sunday morning folder, if you read it, has as its title for this morning: Profiles of Grace. Uh, Profiles of Grace. I want you to, if you mark in your Bibles, I want you to look at a familiar phrase in your own time in these verses, a phrase that's descriptive often of those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior in the Bible. If you want to put, uh, let's just look through these verses together. Let's look at, at verse number two. That you may receive her. There's the first mention of it. Of that prepositional phrase that's so powerful. Who's in the Lord. Verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers, in Jesus Christ. There's the second mention. Uh, Look at verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ. The third mention there, before me. Verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 10. Greet Apollos, our approved, the approved, in Christ. Verse Verse 11. Greet Herodian, my kinsmen. Greet those of the household of, Arv, of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Verse 12. Greet Tryphania and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, my beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Verse 13. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. Verse 22. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Herein lies, my friends, the, the purpose for our ter- sermon this morning. These folks are truly profiles of God's grace because they have received his redemptive, redeeming grace in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are truly transformed people by the grace of God. What more appropriate way to conclude a theological and practical dissertation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ than by giving us 26 names in whom the gospel and its influence had been completely enfleshed. You may ask, How do I know that the gospel's real? How do I know that the gospel's real? And certainly we should review how the Bible defines it. Certainly faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And upon reviewing gospel content of the word of God like we did in chapters 1 through 11 of this book, we can discuss its emotional influence it had on our lives to be sure. What great love the Father has bestowed upon us by sacrificing his one and only unique son for our transgressions. No greater love can any man have than he laid down his life for his brother. I can remember years ago when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out. Some of you may remember that as well. Some television crews had stationed themselves outside particular movie theaters in Lake and Cuyahoga County and they were interviewing people as they came out what they reported in the evening news was that a number of these people came out of that movie in tears. They were tremendously moved by uh, a man, the God man who would lay down his life, endure a horrible slaughter of himself as the lamb of God that came to be slaughtered to take away the sin of the world. And I can remember watching those interviews with people weeping over what they had seen. And over that visual picture of sacrificial love of one person for another. Truly the great violent sacrifice of the omnipotent God-man for fallen men does indeed grip our hearts with what sacrificial love is. But does the grace of God through the gospel merely influence our emotions. Do we truly understand the gospel if we respond emotionally to it? Where else do we find God's grace through a proper understanding of the content of the gospel changing the whole of our person? They can see and hear the content of the gospel. Here's the God-man who came to earth, who lived a perfect life, who died a sufficient, efficacious death on the cross, who was buried, who rose again, who ascended, who's coming again, I can know the content of the gospel. That content that's in my mind can cause me to weep. And anyone here who's been born again, you remember when you heard it, And when the Spirit of God allowed you to comprehend it, it moved you, didn't it? We sang of it this morning, both in choir and congregation. We stand before Him. We stand in righteousness, not our own. Who does that? Who gives up their child, their child's life, for the life of another child? Who does that? We get overwhelmed when someone offers up their kidney. We get overwhelmed when someone who's received a heart transplant from a child or an adult who's passed on, when that family goes back, right, to unite with the family that lost that child or loved one and and they put their hand on their chest just so they can feel the beat of their relative's heart, we'll sit in front of our TV screens and we'll weep. I've done it. It's it's moving. But who gives up a child for another child? One life for a life. This is great love. We understand the content of the gospel and what God's done for us through Jesus Christ. It does move us, it moves us to our core. But does the gospel just merely affect our intellect and our emotions? Are we truly saved if we get that far? My friends, I truly believe that there are many hurting souls all around us during the course of the week that have comprehended the gospel, even in many religious contexts, and they've even wept over the aspect or two of it, and yet they still remain governed by their own old selves so to speak they cannot comprehend how they can get it intellectually they can weep over it emotionally and yet their lives aren't changed there's still an emptiness in their soul that's not filled but yet they know it and they've wept over it many people have devoted their lives to it and yet remain unfulfilled I have a lot of friends in this town and I've spoken to many of them about this particular matter and they're quite conflicted because they do believe. They have wept and yet they still feel empty. They still can't govern their substance abuse, their violent hatred for maybe a soul or two in their lives. Their cursing, their compulsive gambling. They realize the consequences and the harvest of The insanity of the fruit that sin brings into their lives, but they remain in conflict. How can I know so much about the Savior? How can I have emotively given myself to Him and yet I'm not fulfilled? What we learned from chapters 1 through 11 if you weren't here with us during that time but I would encourage you it could take you a while go back and listen to chapters 1 through 11 which is the content of the gospel and what we'll find out as you go through the content of the gospel that when Jesus gave all of himself for us he expected when you're born again if you're going to be called his child to in in response get all of you He gave all of Himself to get all of you. That's your mind, that's your emotions, and that's your will. When someone says, okay, I get it, I've wept over it, but I'm not living it yet, then we understand we're not quite yet born again born anew, born of the Spirit. I believe it's all a process, right? No man comes into the Father unless the Father draws him. And certainly we have to know it before we can emotionally respond to it, before we can surrender our wills to it and say, Lord, your life for mine, my life for yours, it's reciprocal, all right? I want all of me to be all of yours. That's the moment when you're born again. Because your life is changed. The void is filled. Old sin habits are cut off. We may still struggle because we live in a fallen body, but by the grace of God, we're able now to walk in greater consistency and towards Christ-likeness in a joyful manner we've never experienced before. So before we go on, I just want to talk to a few of you who I know are second, third, and fourth generation Christians. Okay? Sincere religious people can be faithful to church and not be born again. You only know that you're truly born again not when you just accept the content And you were moved emotionally by it. But you're only truly born again when your life's been transformed by it. Go back and read Romans chapter 6. It's what it says. In Chapter 7. The truly born again person understands what it means to be positionally placed into the holiness of Christ forever. But then practically grow and compelled by God's grace to grow towards the likeness of that holiness. It transforms us. It is a complete divine renovation, isn't it, my friends? A complete divine renovation. Out with the old and in with the new. Why are you doing this, Pastor Tim? Why are you talking about this this morning? Well, my friends, because I believe given to us here in chapter 16 are 26 names of people who were completely renovated by the grace of God. And I'll tell you what, that's primarily what we're going to know about them. When we conclude this week and next week with even more, I believe, correct cultural assumptions about some of these people. What we're going to find out is that they were just people who had heard the gospel, responded to it emotionally, and volitionally, surrendered their lives to it, to Him, the Christ of the gospel. Their lives were filled up with joy, transformed in holiness, and they began to pursue it gradually. I think it very, very appropriate to finish a book with Paul's longest list of names in Scripture. For a lot of reasons. If for no other reason, is that chapters 1 through 11, which gave us the content of the gospel, which demands all of us, okay, finishes with a litany of sweet souls who enjoyed the reality of gospel transformation in their lives. The Lord Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom from everybody. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Lord Jesus Christ came not only to save us, but He died for the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only unique Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ is much more than a historic religious icon, my friends. That is just one of many to be respected. He is the God-man. He is the only Lamb of God. He is the only capable person in human history that came to capably die for your sins. To take the punishment of God upon Himself so that you could be relieved of receiving that punishment. He laid down his life for us. He was buried. He rose again. He's coming again for us. And when you own the content and it influences you emotionally and you say, you know what? Lord, I can't save myself. No one in religious history can save me. No church can save me. No good work can save me. I cannot be saved except through Jesus Christ alone. Then you're at the point of saying, all right, I'm I'm ready to give my will. And for all of us, that was probably the hardest point, but the most glorious point. When you're no longer. Have your hands on the controls. Jesus got it. Go. There are. 28 items I was reading recently in a Christian periodical that I get that describe what a healthy church is. And do you think that a pastor at this church can give 28 items within a minute? Possibly. I'm going to give you these 28 items and I'm going to do it in less than a minute. So all that means is that you're going to have to listen fast. Because I want you to listen to how evangelicals broadly right, uh, describe the success of a healthy church. Here we go. There are more ministry teams than committees. Departments cooperate with each other. The church cooperates with other churches. The church looks like the neighborhood demographically. The church goes into the neighborhood The front rows are as full as the back rows. Don't. The bulletin isn't just about internal events. Guests feel welcome. Volunteerism is high. Ministry ideals, ideas bubble up. New ideas are embraced. New leadership is embraced long-term. Long-time leadership is respected. The energy and passion of the youth is celebrated. The wisdom and patience of the older saints is honored. The eternal truths of the Bible are taught and lived. Worship is more than just singing. People like bringing their friends. Congregation members love each other. Congregation members like each other. People are being saved. People are being discipled, then discipling others. People are being sent out into ministry. It's a good place to ask hard questions. Failure isn't fatal. And people are more excited about the future than the past. I would say those are admirable. I would say those are admirable. The only thing I would do with that list is is kind of flip it upside down. I would say that a church is at its healthiest when its people are spiritually reproductive, when they're proclaimers of the gospel outside the church to their lost friends because they've been forever thankful for what the Lord did inside their own soul. And as people come to know Christ as their Savior, then what, the tech, what these uh, lists tell us is that they love to disciple someone and prepare them to disciple somebody then i would say that if that's first then all these other attending blessings are will be continue to be the reality of any good healthy local church but what makes rome healthy what makes rome healthy is because these 26 people were interdependently functioning in a local body and what we're going to find out here i believe is potentially 3 Local bodies within the city of Rome interdependently working with each other to strengthen themselves and to prepare themselves to continue to plant outside themselves into the farthermost western hemisphere known in the world at that time into Spain. These were disciple making people that, that did and were experiencing the reality of spiritual health in their context. And it was spiritually reproductive health. That's why when you folks leave here, we often encourage you. We're glad to go deeper in the word, but as we go deeper in the word, we automatically should become wider in our gospel influence. The only thing that keeps a church from infighting ultimately is outreaching Lift up your eyes because the fields are white unto harvest. Come and learn, 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 learn. Encourage, encourage, encourage. But when we leave here, we are ambassadors for Christ out there. That's what these people were. We're going to find that out together in the next couple weeks. 26 names, two biological families, and I believe three house churches. Address, but all of these people are in the Lord, they're born again people, so they're organically growing and organically reaching, faithfully saturating themselves with the word individually, corporately, as a church, and then prepared to be ambassadors for Christ outside. What I find amazing also about this, again, as you know. Paul lists his largest number of people in any local church, but he's never visited Rome. Some of these people he knows in person from his own history, from working with them in other regions from Jerusalem and beyond. We discussed that at the end of chapter 15. But the majority of these people, he's never even given them a handshake. But it's going to become very profound to us That when the gospel sounds out from a place, it sounds out its influence through transformed lives. So as those folks are becoming familiar with Paul's influence in the gospel world at that time, Paul is reciprocally reciprocally becoming familiar with their influence from that city. It's a great reminder to us, folks. A great reminder to us. Yes, we're a local church, but identifying and strengthening and encouraging other like-minded churches in our region, in our state, in our country is absolutely biblical. And because it's biblical, it's absolutely essential. Identify, strengthen them, partner with them, plant with them. That is what's happening here in Romans 15. And these people in Romans 16, they're the people that were doing that. I'm thrilled that the majority of our church is growing increasingly excited about this biblical process of strengthening ourselves so that we can identify, strengthen, partner, and plant with others. That's why I try to bring people up on this stage or identify them in the seats when they come through, whether they be missionaries or church planters, like-minded gospel partners. And as you folks that are growing more and more familiar with arch ministries, our national and global church planting network, that's why we're doing it. That's why we're doing it. It's not just a great idea or something that someone's you know pet hobby. This is the hands and feet of a gospel framework that's right here. And these are the people that are a part of it. And as I read and studied through this list that we're going to go through for the next couple of weeks, I kept thinking, oh my goodness, that's like Grace Church. This person sounds like this person in our church, and this person sounds like this person in our church, and oh my, it's right here. It's right here, and God's doing it. So why a long list like this? That's why. That's why. Okay. Along, among many other things we'll, we'll talk about as we, as we go along. So is there an outline to chapter 16? Well, I suppose there's a little four-point outline, but we're not going to stick to it much. Right. He has a little bit of an um, introduction of one person to us. Verses 1 and 2, and then he goes into a list of all of other people. By the time he gets down to the middle of the chapter, he'll have a a pretty sincere warning of what they need to continue to do so that this organic, interdependent gospel work doesn't ever get uh, blown up. And then he finishes with a conclusion that's not abnormal for Paul. But the focus really here is on these profiles of grace, these people... So who's the first person? I come into our sister Phoebe verse 1 who is a servant of the church which is at Centrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well Whether you're a child, teenager, college, career, adult of any age, I just want you, as we go through the profiles of these people, to just say, you know what, Lord? Am I in here? Not your name, but your transformed life. Think about it. 26 names, largest list Paul's ever given. Am I in here? As we describe these lives. If the answer is no by the end of next week, just never always know that it's never too late to do right and to get started. God desires you by his grace, by your transformed life, to be part of this interdependent gospel connectivity and intention. Right here in your local church. So what about Phoebe? Her name, really, the root of her name comes from the Greek word phobos, which is what? Light. Bright, radiant light, really. Actually, in this particular culture, this would have been a nickname for the Greek god Apollo. The god of extreme light. But think about what God's grace did to transform Phoebe. Think about the god of light who saved her by his grace. And think about the The way her parents may have named her for one pagan intention. And now she's been transformed to represent not Apollo light, but Christ's light. And she did it. She did it. I find it fascinating here too that Paul begins with a lady. It's not uncommon in the New Testament for God's grace to highlight the ministry of women. As a matter of fact, the first time a woman's called the disciple is in Acts chapter 9. Her name was Tabitha. And upon her shoulders and another lady's shoulders, who's mentioned in Acts chapter 16, whose name's Lydia, if you study the context of what's going on here in Rome, it was upon those ladies' shoulders in Philippi that the gospel crescendoed to Rome, and now from Rome on into Spain. Ladies are equal spiritually in their essence and in their purpose and in their abilities. Roles may be distinct and given in the scriptures which they are, but whether you study Acts 17 in the church of Thessalonica where there were prominent women in that group, or tremendous spiritual influence, or or Tabitha, or Lydia, or Phoebe, or Priscilla, who's next in this list. God desires to use ladies as significantly as men in gospel progress. Paul defines her as a sister. And by the way, this particular word is only used four other times in the New Testament. So Paul uses this selectively. This is a unique gal. She's a servant of the church, the text says. The context explains more of an obvious consistency in her service among the church family, but it gets much more layered here as we go along. She's a a servant of the church in Centrea. Now, typically in this particular culture, if you're called a servant and you're identified with a particular local church, and Centrea would have been just on the outskirts of Corinth, so really out of gospel overflow out of Corinth, this church was probably planted. She's from this church. But when your name is associated with the church, regardless whether you're male or female, you had some type of, of leadership influence in that church. We know from 1 Timothy 2 and 3, how those leadership roles are given instruction in Scripture, but this lady was was a ridiculously influential lady in that church, in a good sense. Again, just seven miles from Corinth, serving as the seaport of the city for the commerce to the east. Paul had sailed from this port. When he sailed from Corinth to Ephesus several years before, it was one of the cities surrounding Corinth that was influenced by the gospel coming out of her. And she would, Phoebe would have stopped by Corinth on her way to Centrea to Rome. And Paul is sending his letter under her care. If you study the context a little bit more, um, there's two things Paul's sending with Phoebe. A letter of recommendation. And then the letter to Rome. This is a trusted gal. Back in that culture, you had to have a letter of reference in your back pocket. Paul had that letter of reference if you read First Corinthians nine and other texts, which could be a letter of reference from other trusted believers. So people didn't get caught up in the gossip and the second and third hand information that could destroy a gospel witness's testimony unnecessarily. So, So Paul gives her a letter of reference. He gives her the epistle to the Romans and sends her on her way. And he calls her here a helper. A word that in the original language means three things. It means to care for someone, to give aid to someone, and to help to direct the affairs of someone's life. This is what Phoebe was to Paul. She had cared for him. Paul's saying here, she's given me physical aid and she's been kind of a secretary for me. She's handled my correspondence. She's helped maybe pack my bags to go on another trip. She made sure the snacks were in my backpack. Right? She coordinated my meetings with people. She secretaried Paul along his way. She was a true helper. He says not only a helper of himself, but what does the text say? Of many, not just myself, of many. She was a public and personal servant of the Lord. She had a spirit-filled intentionality about her service that compelled her to personally and publicly take a role of recognized service with a humble disposition, and most likely, the culture would tell us here, and through historians, all that I could get my hands on would tell us that she was probably someone very much like Lydia, an owner of a business, someone with uh, some means, but the text would tell us that she's a helper of Paul and of many That means she gave care for, gave aid to, and directed the affairs not just of Paul, but of many other gospel servants. And the text would tell us, and the historic cultural hermeneutic of this text would tell us that she used all of her resources, all of her resources for gospel advancement. Wasn't a full-time vocational minister. She had a business. She's a very busy, capable lady but every penny that God gave her, she gave it to gospel advancement. Powerful. So her business savvy, her business character would give her welcome in the town of Rome. Paul's letter of reference would give her welcome among the house churches in Rome. And she would be well received by the Roman people. And Paul knew that. That's why he said, give her any help she may need from you. So Paul's saying spiritual reciprocity here, practical reciprocity is natural and it's necessary for the advancement of the gospel. Before we dive into some of the remaining names for this morning listed for us, let's be reminded of some things here, particularly in relationship to God's impartiality. God is impartial when it comes to salvation. He saves both men and women. He saves regardless, regardless of social, educational, vocational, political, or ethnic background. God saves souls. Souls. And he uses each soul he saves for eternal purposes. I do not think it's a mistake at all, again, that he starts with Phoebe. And where he goes next is not by mistake at all. Every time he saves someone, he expects those people, by his grace, to be developed into an agent of gospel advancement. He doesn't save you to shelve you. He doesn't save you merely to develop your own spiritual giftedness inside the local church. He doesn't save you merely to develop that own, your own spiritual giftedness to encourage each other in the local church so that you can continue to exist in an environment of loving, learning people. That's not merely what His grace does. He starts with Phoebe to tell us that the development of the whole person that's been saved completely by Christ is unto the intention of gospel advancement personally, corporately, and then interdependently with other churches. It's right here. And she's not a full-time vocational minister. So how intentional are you living today? Have you even thought about it? You say, Pastor, this is new news to me. Woo! Wow, that's a lot. Think about it. Go home, meditate on it for this week. Ladies, gentlemen, I invite you to the life of Phoebe. Examine it. Interrogate it. Be it. Because this is what God's grace does in every person. So he hasn't made me rich. It's not what it's saying. It's a life that's described for us that all of it's used for gospel advancement. Because that's what we're here for anyway, right? This is Phoebe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's 25 more names. 25 more names. All are profiles of infinite omnipotent grace. I hesitate to go on any farther this morning and and take time away from what your grace has done in each one of the in any one of these lives for what we know about them. But for this morning we certainly understand that when you save you save all of us intellectually emotionally and volitionally, and And the lives of these people are profiles of that transforming grace. And so we just begin and end with Phoebe. Thank you for her life. Thank you for what your grace compelled her to do with the life you gave her. If we leave with nothing else this morning other than the fact that God's grace completely transforms us, Help us to leave with the reality that everything He's done to transform us and everything He's given to us, coupled together, directs all of our hearts by the Spirit of God unto living for intentional gospel advancement. So Lord, we don't own anything we have. We're bought with a price. Help us Therefore now, like Phoebe, to glorify you on our body and our spirit, which are yours. And since our body, since our mind, emotions, and will, and our bodies are yours, help us, Lord, to live for the very reason why you gave us your Son in bodily form. Who gave us his mind, his emotions, who gave us his will, Surrendered to the glory of the Father so that we would surrender our will to Him. So that we would do His will together. Thank you, Lord, again for giving us this sweet, simple life to begin with that exemplified those truths. Help us as a church family to to be developed by Your grace into this kind of character and intention for Your glory and not our own.